If you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. While we get there, we'll read that in its totality here in just one second. Do you remember a time in your life when you have felt defenseless, like you couldn't? There was nothing you could do. That'll make anyone desperate. Everyone at some point in their life pines after security, whether that's financial security or physical security or emotional security or family security or health security. It doesn't really matter the type. If we are vulnerable, desperation can easily become our natural reaction. We all are looking for a safe place to interact or a safe people to tribe up with, a strong husband and father to keep you and your children safe and provide for them, wise and courageous elders to fend off false teachers. Our instincts are drawn towards security and stability and safety. And so I think, of course, and I mean, in the psalm, it rightly prescribed the people of God as as stiff-necked and as hard-headed. Um, but surely, before we rush to judgment this morning, they were desperate. They, they were thirsty. As soon as the people of God leave Egypt, they become vulnerable. They left the security of Egypt, two million people strong, to go out into the desert wilderness filled with harsh conditions and hostile war-hardened tribes. They brought along their women and their children and their livestock and their elderly, so therefore they could only move at the speed of their weakest people. This seems like very risky behavior. When reading this section of text, I imagine after Moses got done leading them in the, the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, after they split, this Red Sea was split, they went across on dry land, and Moses sings this beautiful hymn, and then a really practical-minded killjoy in the back raises his hand and says, oh, hey, Moses, love the song, but what's for breakfast? From Exodus chapter 15 through Exodus chapter 17, God's people are really living, as the old saying goes, hand to mouth. They are struggling to figure out what life looks like post-Egypt. But the fact of the matter is that God put them here and orchestrated these events so they could learn that while they are living hand to mouth, it is His hand to their mouth. It's His hand that is providing and protecting them. And that he isn't doing this because they are worthy of it, but rather he is shaping his people to worship him as the one who is worthy of praise. And through the writing down of the Exodus story, the Apostle Paul understood that it was being written down not just for uh, the people of Israel, the generations to come in Israel, but the Apostle Paul understands that it was being written down 
for Christians, for us. So Exodus 17, while it was for the people of God in the Old Testament, it is most certainly for the people of God in the New Testament and the people of God now. This passage, these passages are living and breathing and practical and full of applicable truths, and they are for us. They have been written down for us. They are not just for that people who lived 200 or 500 or 1,000 or 1,200 years ago. This is the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? The people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, and he said, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And so Moses did so in the sight of all the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they had tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with the Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand atop the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hands, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly block out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord, The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and all his people say, amen. I see two repeated words and a major statement by Moses that are going to make up the three main points that I want to draw out of this text today. Two words, one statement by Moses. The two words are rock and staff or rod. So rock, staff or rod. And then the major statement by Moses that will make up the third point is, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. So the three points are this. If you're a note taker, I'm going to outline it for you. Verses 1 through 7, the Lord is their rock. Verses 8 through 13, the Lord is their shepherd. And verses 14 through 16, the Lord is their banner. Rock, shepherd, banner. Point one, 
verses 1 through 7. The Lord is their rock. Our passage this morning begins with the fourth instance of Israel grumbling against the Lord recorded, excuse me, the third instance of Israel grumbling against the Lord recording in the book of Exodus. The first grumbling incident is before the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, the people grumble again in Exodus 16, verse 2, because of lack of food. And then here we are, the people grumble against the Lord now, again, for the third time in Exodus chapter 17. They are thirsty. They are desperately thirsty. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Very thirsty. Now, I'm not talking about like I'm halfway through my, my Subway sandwich and I ran out of soda kind of thirsty. I'm talking about like really, really thirsty. I told a story when I was preaching through the Psalms. Some of you remember it. Uh, I was backpacking with my dad in my youth, and on one trip, of our water wasn't where the map said it was going to be for an entire day in Kentucky in July. Our canteens ran out. We hit dried up creek after dried up creek. My sister and I started to grumble against our father ready to pick up stones, right, to stone this man because we were thirsty. And he sat us down. He said our only option was to hike past our planned campsite and make it to the ranger station about five miles away. So that's what we did. We didn't talk. We didn't look at each other. We just hiked for five miles to get to the water. And we went, when we got to the ranger station, I didn't care if it was okay if I went into the bathroom of the ranger station I went into the bathroom of the ranger station, I plugged the sink, I filled the sink, and I stuck my face in to the sink. And I drank, and I drank, and I drank, and I drank, until I could not drink anymore. And then I took a nap, and then I got up and did the same thing again. I filled every empty container I had. I will never forget the feeling of refreshment and relief. That cold, clear water, it melted away my thirst and also, simultaneously, it melted away the feelings of desperation that I had as well. The people are thirsty, and they are desperate, and they are picking up rocks to stone Moses. Moses says of them, why do you test the Lord? He's saying, you're, you're not really mad at me. You're mad at the Lord, because the Lord is the one who has brought us out here, and he has said he will provide for us. And the fact that you're ready to mutiny against me, you're not, your anger is not really directed at me. It's directed at the Lord your God. This is unique in this grumbling, because every other time, this grumbling comes up, these trials that God is putting his people through, it says, the scripture tells us that the Lord put them there to test them. And now they are the ones testing, putting the Lord thy God to the test. They're bringing suit. The language is legal. They're bringing litigation against God, and they are seeking to put him on the stand and accuse him. Their insecurity is causing them to not think clearly. They are desperate. But in their desperation, they are not crying out to the Lord. They're putting him on the stand and putting him on trial. Their allegiance to God, therefore, is conditional. They would say something like this, Lord, we will worship you as long as, long as things are the way that we would like them to be. Lord, we will trust you as long as my marriage is like I want it to be. Lord, I'll trust you as long as my kids turn out all right. Or Lord, I'll trust you as long as the situation at work is the way I would like for it to be. It's conditional allegiance to the Lord. Lord, you're my God and I will trust you and I will think you are good and wise as long as things are going the way that I want them to go. 
God tells Moses to do three things. First, leave, get out in front of the people. Second, uh, take some of the elders with you. And thirdly, take, take the staff. Take the staff. And so the next part is important to understand the theology of this passion passage. Exodus 17, verse 6 says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. The Lord says, I will stand on the rock, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so. This language of standing on the rock, God is saying, fine, if you want to put me on trial, I will stand before you on trial. I'll take the stand. I'll stand on the rock. And despite all the evidence to the contrary, this accusation you're bringing against me is that I have abandoned you. You deserve, people of Israel, to be struck down. But instead of me striking you, you're going to strike me. And out of me will flow provision. I will, by your striking me, I will protect you. I will protect you not only from your thirst, but I will also protect you from my wrath as well. You won't get what you deserve, and then you'll also get provision. The Lord is teaching his people that he is their rock of provision, both their struggle against their sin and disbelief in him, but also for the bigger issue, which is the consequence of their disbelief and their grumbling against him. You shall not put the Lord thy God to the test. They did this so much so that Moses named the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quirling, because they were asking, is the Lord with us or not? And for this they deserved far more than a little bit of thirst. For in their thirsty desperation, they are willing to trade their trust and worship of God. They deserved to be struck down. But instead, God stands in in their stead and is struck and out of him flows life. Where else in the Bible does God get put on trial, struck, and from him the striking flows salvation for his people? Ready? We're all in Sunday school. One, two, three. Jesus, right? Jesus, Christ. Unless you think I'm stretching this text to find Jesus, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized in Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Or consider John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Exodus 17 was for the people of God in the Old Testament, but clearly it is for the people of God now. The Lord was the rock of living water. The Lord is our rock of living water. 
So what's, what's the application here? I think it's this. Do not, in your desperation and your feelings of insecurity, be willing to question whether God is with you just because things aren't quite going your way. Good brother, good sister, consider your life. Has he not delivered you from slavery to your sin? Have you not already seen him provide for you? Do we not sing, great is thy faithfulness, yet if things go a little sideways and we are short-sighted, we have a tendency to grumble and say, is God even with me? Do you even care about me? We become like those stiff-necked people. Yet I recall the words of the beloved disciple John when he wrote to the believers, Beloved, these things, Exodus 17, these things are written so that you do not sin. Exodus 17 is written that we might learn our lesson from the Israelites. But, continuing on with John's words, but when you do sin, when you do in your desperation question, we have an advocate with the Father the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one, our rock, our redeemer, out of whom flows living water. The rock of provision is Christ. It's Jesus. Second point, so the Lord is their rock. The Lord is our rock. The Lord is their shepherd. This water scene is taking place at the front of the caravan of the Israelites. Remember, there's about two million of them. <clears throat> I did some math this week. I'm not real good at math. I'm not bad at math, but I'm also don't like math, okay? But I did some math this week. That would mean, if there's two million of them, roundabout, that would mean if we put them in ranks of 40 people wide with two feet in between them, which is like this much, so they're like stacked in there, their caravan would have been almost 20 miles long. 40 people wide, two feet between them, two million stretch out. The front of the caravan would have been almost 20 miles from the back of the caravan. Most likely they were probably farther than that because it was very unlikely that they were able to keep all their cows and kids in tight ranks, right? So the slow and the elderly and the children and the sick are straggling towards the back of this thirsty people. Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18, fills in the blank of the narrative for us a little bit. So they're marching along here, and a man named, a leader named Amalek, from whence we get the name, the Amalekites, sees a golden opportunity and attacks. Moses quotes God in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and he fills in the blanks for us a little bit by saying, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and attacked you, and attacked you amongst the stragglers at your rear who were faint and weary. 
The, the narrative here leaves us with the impression that the attack scene is taking place almost immediately after the water from the rock scene. So they're getting water with Moses in the front, and from the back of the caravan comes news of an attack. The Amalekites saw this golden opportunity to pick off weak people who are carrying all the gold and goods they left from Egypt with. And they thought to themselves, easy pickings. We're going to get them. This is the first mention of Joshua as a military commander. 80-plus-year-old Moses looks at him and says, as soon as he gets the news, he looks at Joshua and he says, battle stations, get your men, go. Go. And notice he says, tomorrow. Why is it tomorrow that the battle is going to take place? 20 miles, at least, to get back there. Battle stations for Joshua means get your sword, get your boys, and roll. And he does. He goes right away. And Moses and Aaron and Hur start climbing the mountain so they can see the battle. 80-year-old man. Of course he's not going to grab his sword. He realizes at his place at the top of the mountain, he's going to leave that, the sword wielding to the young men, and his role is going to be taking the staff of the Lord up on the mountain and lifting holy hands in prayer. And I want to be careful in drawing direct applications on this point, but I think with the totality of Scripture and the wisdom, I can say these things, and it's related, maybe not direct. You're not Moses, so it's not evidently a one-on-one, but I think there's wisdom here that we can glean. I very at least can say, olders and older brothers and sisters here, just because you can no longer swing a sword with us young bucks doesn't mean you have outrun your usefulness when it comes to ensuring the victory of God's people. The world tells you to hang it up. And to quote John Piper, go pick up seashells in Florida. Nothing wrong with going to Florida, but if that's the entirety of your life, that's foolishness. Proverbs 16.31 says, Gray hair is a crown of glory. We need your wisdom. With your discernment and life experience, you know when it's time for battle stations. You know when it's time to draw the sword and get hard after it. And when it's just time to take a deep breath and calm down. Most importantly, we need you to lift up holy hands and pray for God's people to prevail. And don't put them down until the Lord gives the victory. Immediate application, you can join us today right back here at 1.30 for our prayer service. We will hold up one another's hands in prayer at 1.30 today. So Moses is up on the mountain with Aaron and her now, and he is willing them to prevail, and he's trusting the Lord to do it doing a several-long hour or hour-long isometric isometric exercise. That's when you're just statically holding something. When his hands are up, Israel prevails, and if he starts to drop, starts to shake and drop his hands, they start losing. And remember, he's 80 years old. I thought about, as a way of illustrating, trying to preach this entire sermon with my hands up in the air. So I practiced a little bit this week, but my arms started getting tired at about 15 minutes. And I'm 35, and I have a lot of fight left in me. He's 80 years old. Of course he gets tired. Of course he gets tired. Of course those arms start to come down. So Aaron and her grab a rock, and they sit it down. There's a rock again, by the way. Grab a rock, and they stick it underneath of him. 
And they hold his hands up. And most importantly, not just his hands, but the staff of the Lord is in the air until the sun sets, until the Amalekites are defeated. And I'm, I'm indebted to Pastor Jim Hamilton for pointing out that it's interesting that it's these three characters who go up on the mountain to intercede for the people of God. We have Moses, who is clearly identified in Deuteronomy chapter 18 as prophet. Aaron, who is set to be the, uh, the, the beginning of the priestly line of Israel. And her, who isn't evidently king over Israel, but he is a leader of the tribe of Judah. So what do we have? Victory for God's people is going to be mediated through a prophet, a priest, and king. Isn't that, when things like that happen in the word of God, it's just amazing to me that nearly 1,300 years before the life and ministry of Christ, that even something as seemingly insignificant as who Moses chose to keep his hands in the air on top of the mountain is already foreshadowing the Messiah. It was not these three men who caused Israel to prevail against the Amalekites this day. It was the Lord. It wasn't Moses or a rock that watered the people of Israel. It was the Lord. It wasn't Moses that split the Red Sea. It was the Lord. It wasn't Moses who authored the plagues. It was the Lord. And at every single one of these scenes, what was the symbol of the power of God? What did Moses have in his hand? The staff. The rod. God is protecting his people like a shepherd protects his sheep. You can almost hear King David playing his harp and singing, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He knows the needs of his people. He knows they need water and food. He knows they need forgiveness for their grumbling and sanctification from their grumbling. And he knows they need protection from these external evil threats. He is their, quite literally, their front and their rear guard. Water in the front, taking care of those needs. Army in the back, taking care of the evil that is surrounding them. His rod and his staff. He is their shepherd and he comforts his sheep. I know not the thoughts of all your minds and feelings of all your hearts this morning, but if you are a Christian, this application point rings out from the text. When you doubt and ask, is God even with me? Is God even with us? The answer is always yes. Always yes. Our shepherd has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. This is a, I'm about to say a sentence, and then I'm going to explain this sentence. But this saying is trustworthy and true. God gives his children nothing but gifts. Even those things that we perceive as bad. Romans 8.28 says that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. So job loss or persecution or sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. To the Christian, he knows what you need that you will be fit to rule over the new heavens and the new earth with him. And he is going to give you what you need to bring that about. This, not, not 
not some plastered on smile or, or, or fake veneer. This is what's at the bedrock of peace that surpasses all understanding. That rather than grumbling and questioning the Lord, you can say the Lord is my shepherd and he knows and he will give me what I need. Not what I think I need right now, but what I need so that 10,000 years from now I will still be calling him Lord and I will still be worshiping him as Lord. That's the peace that surpasses understanding. That's why you can look bad diagnoses in the face and say Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. This is the lesson he's teaching his people in Exodus chapter 17. He is their rock. He is their shepherd. He is our rock. He is our shepherd. And finally, out of the mouth of Moses, he's showing them that he is their banner. He's their banner. So rock, shepherd, banner. What does that mean? And the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the name of it. Excuse me, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. What's going on here? God is really... Not happy with the Amalekites. He will continue to be really angry with the Amalekites from generation to generation. That's what the word says. Why? Well, consider the evil done by these people this day. They saw a literal golden opportunity. But they didn't go out and draw up battle lines and say to the, to the Israelites, hey, send out your men. We're going to send our guys, you send your guys. Let's have at this thing. That's not what they did. No, they killed old people. And pregnant women and sick people, children. They waited until they were weak and thirsty. Some commentaries even say that the thirst of the people, because they're at Rephidim, and Rephidim was an oasis, so there should have been water at Rephidim for them to drink. And these events are so close in proximity to each other, some commentators think that the Amalekites were, were, were making a, uh, a barricade. They were uh, not allowing the Israelites to come and drink as a way of make, getting them to be thirsty so they could then try to swoop in, pick them off. This is important framing for what's to come later in the Bible, often in an effort to be relative, relevant to modern sensitivities. Preachers will avoid talking about books like Joshua when the people are commanded to slay entire cities. Don't even leave the cows alive. Don't kill all the livestock. Burn it down, God says. Why does he do that? That doesn't seem very loving. Because God is the God of old people. And pregnant women, and children, and sick, the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. He hates with a seething anger 
those who take advantage and seek to bring harm on the vulnerable. He hates evil. His wrath burns hot against those who would harm the vulnerable. The people who inhabited the land before the Israelites had a long history of this kind of evil, and he is going to tear them out by the roots. Blot out from under heaven any memory of them, because they were evil. This kind of evil. When an army raises its banner... It is to signify to everyone around, this is who we are. It's to bring confidence to friends and allies of that army. It makes me almost think about, you know that, um, the, you've probably all seen the Lord of the Rings movies. Most of you probably have the last one when the final battle there is taking place and it starts to look like it's turning for the dark side, that they're going to win. And then all of a sudden the, the riders of Rohan show up, Right? Then they, you see the first, because they have it up in the air, and the, that green banner comes out, and they see it, and all the people that are there fighting, the orcs, what do they do? They tremble. But the people who are their allies take heart and fight even harder. And the army... They, this is when an army raises a banner. This is who we are. It brings confidence to friends. It strikes fear in the hearts of enemies. Hold on with me and let me take you on a biblical theological journey of why this, the Lord is our banner, is so powerful and, and such a beautiful concept from Exodus 17. At the beginning of their journey of wilderness, right here in Exodus 17, the people of water get water, or people of Israel get water from a rock, and then they fight the Amalekites, and the Lord declares, Moses declares, the Lord is my banner. The Hebrew word for banner here is nace, nace. And then in Numbers chapter 20, at the end of the wilderness journey, they get water from the rock. Remember this, Moses was supposed to speak to it, not strike it, but he strikes it. Nevertheless, they get water from a rock, and then Numbers chapter 21, one chapter later, the people of Israel are plagued with fiery serpents. And Moses is instructed to make a golden serpent and lift it up on a pole. Lift it up on a, and the actual word is nace, a banner. And all the people that will look at it would be saved. So you have water from a rock, banner of salvation, Exodus 17. Water from a rock, banner of salvation, Numbers chapter 20. And then the prophet Isaiah picks up on this as he's prophesying about the consummation of Christ's kingdom in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And it says this, In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal, nace, same word, for the nations, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And then in verse 12 of chapter 11 of Isaiah, he will raise a nace, a banner for the nations. And then Jesus himself brings all of this together in John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. In verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die, which we all know was on the what? Cross. And then in John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, 
He just straight goes right at interpreting this banner scenario with the serpent in the wilderness. John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And, Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up as a banner, as a nace, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, may be saved. Moses was saying, in the face of evil, in the face of our enemies, our rally cry is Yahweh. Our banner is Yahweh. He is the symbol and bringer of justice. He avenges the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. He brings assurance and victory to those who love justice and mercy, and he strikes fear into the heart of our enemies. The Lord is our banner. Then Isaiah foretold, and Jesus affirmed, that what took place in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 was the foreshadowing of the embodiment of justice. The lifting up of Jesus on the cross is the banner that draws those who love righteousness into him, and it strikes fear into the hearts of those who love evil and do evil. God has lifted up his Son that all nations might see and stream to Christ, that the knowledge of the Lord and love for justice and righteousness would cover over all the world like the waters cover the deep. The Lord is our banner. The Lord is our nace. Jesus is our banner. Amen? Tomorrow will be the 505th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. This is the way that we mark the start of the Protestant Reformation. He penned the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I'm sure for those of you that like hymn writing and track closely the songs that we sing. I'll probably get blistered for not scheduling a mighty fortresses our God for the day. Sorry, Will. I set you up poorly on that one. My bad. Uh, but mighty fortresses our God was written by Martin Luther. 505 years ago, the Protestant Reformation began. There is one verse that sings this truth, what I'm talking about. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. So, you know, we won't fear. We see the banner. The prince of darkness, though, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for though his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. And what is that word? That word is cross. Banner. That word is nace. And all authority on heaven and on earth has been given unto him, and he is drawing all the nations unto himself. He will destroy the Amalekites. Jesus, make no mistake about it, just because he is letting the cup of wrath fill up does not mean he will not pour it out. He will blot out evil and those who love it. He is our banner. 
And the final enemy to be overthrown will be death itself. And those who love his righteousness will reign with him forever and ever and forever. Amen. And so, unconverted soul in my hearing today, listen to me. Look at my banner. Look at my Jesus. If you are not for Christ, you are against him. Repent of your sin and take comfort in the banner before it is too late. Christ has laid down his life to make a way where there was no way. The rock has been struck. You are thirsty. Come unto him and drink. And also allow me to correct an error that plagues modern evangelicalism. It's an error that neuters our hope powerful things and ignores the power of the kingdom of God in the ways that I'm talking about it. Shocking statement, ready? Heaven is not your final home. If you die in Christ, yes, you will go be with Jesus. Jesus is currently in heaven, but he isn't going to stay there. Therefore, the dwelling place of God is with men, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You live where Jesus lives. Jesus is currently in heaven. He's not going to stay there. So therefore, heaven is not your final home. It's a temporary stop-off until he returns and puts death under his feet, and he blots out evil, and heaven and earth are one. Brothers and sisters, Exodus 17 was recorded to assure God's people that he is our rock that saves us from ourselves. He is our shepherd that saves us from outside evil, and he is our banner that gives us hope and makes our enemies flee. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.